This is Aliens and Artists, part three of our conversation with Kimberly Lafferty. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. In this episode, we discuss how transitory states become enduring stages of consciousness, how human contact with non-human entities impacts the attachment cycle in human development, the use of consorts in monastic tantric traditions, and how we make meaning of the things that make no sense. Plus, a cautionary tale of what happens when you fail to make cakes for the spiritual denizens of your retreat cabin. But first, Kimberly, let's talk about how non-ordinary experience becomes ordinary experience. Let's talk about how altered states become normalized, moving from a transitory state of experience to an enduring stage of development. Can you speak to the difference between an altered state and a stabilized stage and how the former became the latter in your case? Right, sure. Um, Yeah, we'll speak about it in super simple terms. You know, a state is something that comes and goes. It's a state of mind, a state of cognition, a state of even physicality, since the mind and the body are connected, which we all know at this point that is different than what you're used to, right? So you sense often a going into it and a coming out of it and a beginning and an end. The most obvious form of states, which I don't love to make this comparison, but is you take some sort of psychotropic. You go into the psychedelic experience and you come out of it. But we have states that we go through every day. I mean, we go into waking state, a dreaming state, and then a deep sleep state to even talk about what we talked about before. Those are states that we transition in and out of. Obviously, anybody can see a sleeping state is different than a waking state. So now this is interesting. Stages, by the way, in other words, are, you know, we'd like to talk about them in the integral world as center of gravity. And from flipping to the modern Western developmental psychological framework, it's been validated through now hundreds and hundreds of different scientific methods that our frames of ego or meaning making tend to go through stages of development as we go from birth to death. And there have been at least seven, but it's been more articulated since then, different stages of development that we tend to grow through. And and we can even see five-month-year-old is going to see the world, experience the world, and make meaning of the world very differently than a five-year-old, which has increased in complexity, and then a 15-year-old, even more complex, more going on, and a a 50-year-old, right? We can even see that in obvious ways. So what was the original question, Stuart? The difference between a state and a stage, that probably answers it. It does. And beyond that, perhaps some more of your first-person account of how reality changed when you went from the non-ordinary state experience in the spontaneous out-of-body event versus what it felt like in your bodies and senses when that arrived as a stabilized, enduring stage. So the felt lived experience of moving from transitory state to enduring stage. 
Okay, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, my experience of it, it interesting because there were watershed moments where what was previously a state, for example, what happened in Boston, became a permanent stage. And the first time was leaving my first, it's called a leirung, and that's a Tibetan word that's used to capture a tantric retreat. It actually means get ready. You're getting yourself ready. That's what the word lay. It's a word for karma, like action. Get yourself actioned up and ready for contact. That's, that's what it is. After I did my first six-week solitary, locked myself away, literally no magazines, no books, except your sadhana, nothing, and just meditating eight hours a day, doing a lot of yoga, eating healthy food, total silence, saw the red fireball. After that, it was pretty stabilized. And then, of course, it's, yeah, so it was, it was quite different. It was pretty regular contact and ability to use those precognitive skills more readily. This, you know, all requires, you know, I'm not saying I was this way in the first years of my son's life when I was dealing with being a new parent and not having enough sleep. And believe me, I am not claiming some, you know, enlightened state stage where I can see the future and see all synchronicities. Like, it's really hard being a parent, you know, and so it, it, it also goes away. But yes, it was, it was more stabilized. Now, what's interesting is that in modern developmental theory, what we've discovered fairly recently, and there's some argument about this actually, is that the state is literally a taste of your next stage. So when I, you're in a state, you're just popping into your leading edge of your next ego state, your next, your next level of consciousness, basically, your next expression of how you see the world and how you see yourself. So you're popping into your leading edge and then dropping back out again. So when you get there, you're, it's just, na it's natural. It's the natural developmental process of, of ego development. And this is actually supported. So this is a modern idea, a modern theory, especially really strengthened with Terry O'Fallon's research with, with Stages International. That state is simply your next stage that you grow into, and then it gets normalized. And in Tantra, there's a correlation there because the biggest obstacle in Tantra is letting the extraordinary become ordinary, called Tamel Nungshan in Tibetan. It's considered the biggest obstacle is you just get used to the extraordinary, so it ceases to be extraordinary. And that according to the theory, is kind of what happens when we grow into the next stage, which was our previous state. Let's follow this thread into the attachment cycle in human development mm -hmm. and how that is so often disrupted in experiencers' lives. You're well acquainted with the manner in which trauma, contact, abduction are braided together. You've received instructions to obstruct or prevent the greys from taking your child. In regards to the way in which human contact with non-human entities often disrupts the attachment cycle, is that disruption by design or is it incidental? Is it collateral damage? Do you have thoughts on this consideration as it pertains to the attachment cycle and human development? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
You know, to be honest, there hasn't, I haven't seen a lot of, you know, research done on trauma and the development, development cycle for adults. There's been quite a lot done on its effects on children. How would I, you know, my, so as a researcher, I would need to really look at that a little bit more. And I think the research needs to be done on that for adults, which doesn't exist right now, as far as I know. From a personal sense, both it seems clear that, I don't want to say it's preordained, but obviously our trauma has purpose because it just is too rich for transformation to be purposeless. As we know, it's where the gold is. It's if we can identify our deepest traumas and then somehow help others with those traumas or with that, what we learn from that, from the wisdom we cultivate from that, that's the definition of a satisfying life. And so there's just too much of a connection between trauma and transformation and transcendence for it to be an accident. What else? How else answer your question? I just don't know the answer, the rest, honestly. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Let's turn to Tantra as it has been modified commodified, diluted, or simply misinterpreted by the West, reducing it on occasion to an hour-long orgasm and so forth. How does the broad North American reading of Tantra match or diverge from the genuine article? Where do they part ways and why? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, I, I have a, as we mentioned, you know, quite a bit, bit of experience with Tibetan Buddhist traditionalist Vajrayana in Tantra. And I have not out Googled what people are calling Tantra or really understand what it is they're claiming out there, except yeah, the general, the general idea of it just being about sex and the senses and sort of a a mat sometimes you get the the magical thinking, you can manifest your own world, sort of the secret ideas around it, which is just sort of nonsense in my view, it's quite different in terms of the techniques are very explicit. They're very rigorous. It's based on deep, deep ethics and understanding of ethics, getting the karmic body, the emotional body, the physical body, your basically psychological health in order before practicing with the subtle body and is there utilizing sex? Yes, but not in the way people think. Usually, one is working to, at the deepest level, balance the masculine and feminine energies in our own body, which is also a goal of Hatha Yoga. It's not Hatha, it's Hatha Yoga, which means the yoga of the sun and the moon, which is a code word for the, the two channels in our energetic body that run on the left and right side of our central channel that represent the feminine and the masculine and you're bringing those two together and so it's much more working like sweating it out in deep meditation doing extensive inner body light body channels winds and drops as we say visualizations that balance the energies and drops inside your own being and in order to facilitate that, um, the practitioner uses meditational deities that are as real for them as their karma allows, basically, right? It's that same idea. Are they real? Are they not? 
kind of depends on who's looking and what you're experiencing. So you're also utilizing a very attractive for you, bliss-inducing, called a yeshe kichakya, like a, a meditation consort to try and generate bliss in your body, which is then directed towards opening and clearing these inner channels. And so it's a lot more like difficult, like you have to know how to meditate and focus and concentrate to even begin to pull this off, real Tantra. Like you, without the meditation and the focus, you're not going to be able to sit there for an hour and do these very intense inner visualizations. And without the training, the instructions, it's, it's, it just kind of does, like I can't compare the two because that's not real for me. You know, that's, that's not what it is. There is use of physical consorts, certainly, in the monastic tradition. As far as I can tell, it, and as far as I've been told, it would often be trained, qualified, trained, maybe prostitutes. And I mean, I wish there was a nicer, has such, you know, negative connotations, which is just silly. But these were trained, skilled bliss workers who were brought in to, quote unquote, initiate the monks and give them a taste of what that bliss is like, which they then in idea would, would not see again. And they would use that one experience as their meditative tool to then just go do it by yourself on the cushion. The other thing about it is, like I said, I mean, the, the only words I could use to describe the clear light, Stuart, were like, I should pull out my journal and just read it to you, but it was like massive cosmic orgasm like I couldn't find another word. And there's a reason for that. It was literally, the only comparison is like the best orgasm you've ever had times a million. And that's not an accident. The, technically the way the texts describe what is actually going on, check this out. Okay, here's a secret for you. When we orgasm, when we die and when we see the clear light or emptiness or ultimate reality as it's sometimes referred, clear light and tantra is a tantric word. What's actually happening according to this idea is our two side channels, the sun and moon hatha uh, channels that are apparently currently wrapped around the central channel and choking off the central channel like according to, to Tibetan Tantra, these chakras are not pretty little flowers. They're choke points that need to be loosened up and prana or energy needs to flow through the proper channels for us to have these experiences and to evolve our body and mind. And so those two side channels loosen up enough, maybe through the breath. Right? Breath, we all know a lot of us have experienced breath work inducing different states so that enough prana or energy can shoot through your central channel, which is aligned with your spine. It like opens up just for a minute. So they say, the texts say many places at the moment of death, at orgasm and at clear light, the central channel opens up, like it flows free just for a short period of time. And we have this incredible bliss. And then it closes back up again. So there's the correlation between orgasm, death, and, and the clear light as well. I'd like to linger a bit on the role of the tantric consort, the bliss workers, not 
in a salacious sense. I just wonder if you would reflect on authentic Tantra and contrast it with our current cancel culture or the Me Too movement. Considering Tantric prostitutes have had a critical value in Vajrayana and the controversies around figures like Trungpa Rinpoche, his successor, and a myriad of others, given the reactivity, the sensitivities of our time, the shadow, the taboo, this backlash against gurus, how can Tantra be imported and assimilated into this flux of modern North American issues? Does that make sense as a question? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I have stories and you know stories. And well, I think from what I can tell from the text, how it's written, how they're rewritten, how it was passed down. When I read the original empowerment text, because that's what we're talking about. That was a, a rare, when a monk would say, go through that, it was a rare tantric empowerment that may never happen again in your life, right? Unfortunately, but I think it worked pretty well. I mean, you know, the lineage survived. It's alive. So that tells me something. It's worked for me and a lot of people in my life. The Dalai Lama looks really happy. I think it, in many ways, it was the right time and the right place, you know, a thousand years ago. It seemed like a good solution. Nowadays, it's just a complete cluster, you know what. We've got those last couple, we're the first and second generations of these Western educated Buddhists trying to practice Tantra. And there's a lot of mess to it. I think a lot of it is not transferable in the fundamentalist way and needs to be updated, which is what I've made an attempt to do. And my teachers have made an attempt to do, you know, I've, I've done a dozen Vajrayogini empowerments in the last 15 years for private groups or individuals, right? So more than that, you know, but often this is a group of say 40 people. No prostitutes were brought in for any of my empowerments. So obviously we have to make, and I do not sleep. The only person who was a student for a day for me is now my husband. I'm actually personally, for being a tantric teacher, I'm extremely monogamous. You know, I'm, there is no chance in hell it's ever going to happen with me or any of my students or my clients, you know. So I have a very, very tight seatbelt on, and that boundary is fierce and clear, which allows me to teach these things and talk about these things in and, and one modern application and, and do it in the real way, you know, share the real deal. I think the modern application, as far as I've taught it to my students when I've taught like these ancient texts on consorts, for example, is you find a partner and you find your own partner. And for me, real Tantra is the magic of the mandala, the sacred world that my husband, my other half is at, we're at the center of for me. Like the world we are manifesting day to day is because the two of us making love with each other in each moment in all of its messy householdingness. We are literally and I do mean this part, literally manifesting our day-to-day -day life through how we interact together. And that's what Tantra really is. Like that's real Tantra is working on your partnership. <laughs> so on it, Stuart, you know what I do these days for like super secret Tantra courses when everyone's coming and expecting, you know, like sex instruction is I teach attachment theory with your, you know, how to get along with your partner. 
what to do when we get triggered, how to use each other for, you know, for wisdom and for growth, how to create a happy, safe home, because you can't have any Tantra without that. And yeah, that's my modern application. And I'm not saying everybody needs to get married and have a kid like me. You can do incredible energetic union bliss meditations by yourself on a cushion with a, a yeshi kichakya, a meditative, a meditative consort. You know, that can take you all the way, apparently. But Tantra was also designed for householders. It was designed to be in the world. Yeah. So like my husband and I doing the dishes and making meals and building businesses and managing real estate and building retreat centers. That's my sexy Tantra now. Yeah. And I also believe in a, in a sex life. I think a sex life is really important. So <laughs> Got to put that in there too. <laughs> in the spirit of being in the world, I'm so curious to hear about your experience of giving birth how it connects to your tantric practice or even your anomalous experiences. Can you tell us about giving birth? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. What to say about giving birth? You know, it's happened to all of us. You know, we've all been born and bled. And yet somehow, I think we forget that how godlike the ability, the power is how these two apparent humans come together and play a part, an essential part in manifesting life, you know, creating this, this vehicle for a soul to come through, I guess is, is the best way to put it. You know, just zooming out for a minute, giving birth was, it felt like the beginning of of my true, we'll call it um, bodhicitta practice. You know, I'd been doing meditations to open my heart for a decade, but when you are the one who's taking responsibility for a helpless being and a child, whether it came out of your body or not, if you're the one who decides you're gonna be that parent, you know, it seems like the karma of that care produces whole range of emotions, but does produce a sort of love that is eminently comparable to the clear light experience I had. There is the love that I've experienced with my husband and my son and just day to day, like this morning, the joy in each other's eyes is the closest thing and very, very comparable to that extraordinary spiritual state experience that I had. So, you know, ch having children is obviously not the only path and not for everybody, but for me, and, you know, doing it at 40, especially after having all of this time to work on other things. Yeah, it's, it, it became, I started to grow again. I, I don't think I'd actually gr had grown spiritually for quite a few years. I think I was, I'd sort of plateaued developmentally and cognitively and psychologically and having a child and, and giving birth certainly turns the wheel again on your own developmental journey because we go through as parents, we're mirroring the developmental experience of our child. Yeah. So that definitely changes things. So having lived that real Tantra, building a family, bringing life into the world and 
having been instructed by your guides, your allies, to take measures to prevent your son from being abducted, the implication, of course, being that abduction is negative, to be averted, avoided. What are your feelings as to these entities performing the abductions? Grace, Mantids, you followed the instructions. What do you feel is going on here? Why are they taking people? What is the objective? How pessimistic, optimistic, agnostic are you about this phenomenon? Can you speak to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to say is the language that I don't think of it as guides, although it is, it's lineage. I'm in a lineage that I've worked to cultivate. And that feels very both celestial and galactic and fey. Like it's a, it's like a family in a way that has my back. And Part of it is is ancestral, like my grandmothers are watching out for me. But it's, yeah, it's a lineage that goes back thousands of years. And I feel the power of that lineage and that they, if I ask, I have to ask, then they will protect me and they'll protect me and mine. And there's a, there's a deep visualization you do every night as you fall asleep where you put a Merkaba, Merkabra, those six-pointed star around your house is like a protection field with a diamond egg around it. So, yeah, I I feel like the lineage is there to support and protect, just like we would neighbors or family. You know, Stuart, I don't know about the greys and I don't, or the, the mantids. I believe the stories I hear from experiencers and I know that talking about it and sharing it with me when they do because I have such sympathetic and ears and believing ears you know I I feel like I'm still learning about those particular deities I'm not sure if I have a I personally have a connection with them or not after my Boston experience I developed and it's still there now a divot on my third eye and i so i wonder about that myself you know i'm still learning i, I have you know i'm so i don't feel like i've been abducted or i have contact with them but but i'm still learning about that yeah so we'll see i'm not sure you know and i'm really looking forward to beginning to actually comb through the data of my research because i believe it's in the stories of those like yourself, you know, and others who really have the intimate, terrifying, wonderful, painful, you know, the whole range of experiences with these beings where we'll begin to identify what patterns might be there. And I'm really looking forward to learning about that. Let's talk more about your research. How many experiencers have come to you? What is it they report? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, over the years, there's been many dozens. Some of them were people who are, you know, students of mine and studying, you know, the traditional lineages and texts with me. Others more recently, I've just opened up my practice publicly again to work with people one-on-one and in groups. And more recently, I am starting to hear stories of abductions, you know, many synchronicity stories, memories. There seem to be a lot of memories that come up 
in the context of what's happening with our media right now, you know, the conversation is just heating up. And in terms of my research, really at the beginning of this, collecting uh, the data of asking experiencers to fill out something I'm calling an experiencer's inquiry. And this is a, a series of sentence stems. And a sentence stem is just an uncompleted sentence. This is in the tradition of the Washington University Sentence Completion Test, which is just an academically grounded test by Jane Lovinger, who was a student of Eric Erickson in the developmental psychological field. And this experiencer's inquiry is the latest iteration of the sentence completion tests, which codifies the different stages of meaning making that we tend to have as human beings and asks the experiencers particular questions about their experience, where then I am beginning in the next month to go through and analyze the data to see how those experiences line up in a pattern developmentally, according to developmental stages. So that research is just really launching. It's ready, but it's it's launching now. And I'm looking forward over the next six months to really start to comb through and see, you know, are all experiences, are people describing merely nuts and bolts experiences of the anomalous, you know, physical encounters, don't understand how to make meaning of it. Are there more, for example, I'm a great case of spiritual meaning making. You know, I all the different things that happened to me from when I was little to when I was 26 to the precognitive stuff, the lucid dreaming, the fireballs, I framed that within a spiritual meaning. That doesn't mean that's any more valid or less valid, but that's what made sense to me. And that's really what we look at because it's a mystery. It's a mystery. How do we make meaning of the things that make no sense? That's the, that's the question I'm asking. Do you need more subjects for the research? Yeah, I don't have a dearth of them. Uh, you know, I for those who are interested in participating in the research, they can go to the uh, confluenceexperience.com or KimberlyTeresaLafferty.com, and there's a button you can click called Experiencers Inquiry. And so people can sign up to be part of that research. It's absolutely free, and you get some great benefits by doing it and it really will contribute, you know, a scientific, validated scientific approach to how we make meaning of these anomalous experiences. Because sometimes we're not sure. I mean, I would like to ask you how you would answer that question since you've heard so many experiencers stories, how are people making meaning of what they experience? Unfortunately, what I find among experiencers is everything, all of it. People being injured, people being healed, consciousness being transformed, but also development being arrested, marriages destroyed, soulmates being brought together, wonder, horror, expansion, collapse. One universal tends to be ontological shock. One challenge in doing this work is just resisting the temptation to reduce this constellation of enigmas to one interpretation or a single tidy explanation. You know, it's all nuts and bolts, or it's all just phenomenology. It's a collective tulpa. It's angels, it's demons, it's phantasmagorical, 
It's us from the future, and on and on. Not knowing is a tough asana to hold. Humans are story beings. We want a beginning, a middle, and an end. But these phenomena seem to live and breathe disjunction and disruption and discontinuity. It gives us story beings existential vertigo. Many non-human entities seem to inhabit a different story structure than we do, and therein lies the paradox, the doubleness. But like it or not, we're not alone. We are in a relationship with many of these beings, and it's to our disadvantage to deny that or ignore it. It would be to our advantage to form a mature, coherent culture around these mysteries in order to present a unified front and advocate for our sovereignty. We need depth and plurality, a big we. That's my two cents anyway. No, that was, thank you so much. That was helpful. It really just, it brings me to, again, this concept of lineage because I couldn't agree more. And since we're not alone, just like we do in our little human families and tribes, we find like-minded people or different enough to be attracted and helpful and balanced with us, you know, to come together in these little tribes. And wouldn't that also be the case that we would have allies and maybe even, you know, people that might harm us, just like in the animal kingdom, for these other intelligences and entities. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And an important part of how I navigate is, again, knowing I'm not alone and being tuned into my, my allies and my helpers. I can navigate with help. That's a key part of my practice. That help that comes from being part of a we is so important. Experiencers so often feel isolated. Not only do they usually not want publicity or attention over what has happened to them, they often wish it never happened. Understandably, because society not only disincentivizes such honesty, there's actually a punitive response. One of the things that can reliably improve things for experiencers in coming out of the closet and owning their history is calling in a team. You know, would you like to go into the forest at night alone or accompanied by a team of seasoned wilderness experts? Experiencers' first instincts may be to isolate, insulate, protect ourselves and our families, our loved ones, our kids, wanting to limit their exposure to the volatility and unpredictability of anomalous forces, hoping we don't end up divorced or unemployed or friendless. So, Kimberly, how do you help people build a team? Yeah, you bet. Oh, yeah, so beautiful. Well, well I just have to acknowledge, acknowledge like the, that's why the work such as the experiencer group is so essential right now um, that we actually have face-to-face people we can talk to and share our stories with. I personally don't walk into the woods unless I've cleared it with mantra, unless I have asked for permission. And that, that has comes down to my training. And so when I'm working with somebody, no matter what the background I offer best practices that come from the perennial philosophy and perennial traditions, but yes, include the indigenous methods, because you could call Tibetan Buddhism an indigenous method for sure. The indigenous methods that our modern Western society has whitewashed. We've completely whitewashed all of the tools of the team 
out of our cultural and societal psyche. Not only it's, yeah, it's because it's that it's, it's like the dearth of spirituality and religion combined with the taboo really leaves the experiencer in a terrible place. It's sick, actually. It, it makes my tummy hurt, like the pain that these experiencers have, have experienced. And yeah, so, you know, it's the basics, Stuart, you know, a, a deep visualization of clearing the space, of asking for benevolent help to come, whatever is special to that person. If they happen to resonate with Christian language, then I might offer or use more Christian language. But the coaching I do is developmental coaching using the stages methodology. So I'm utilizing the, the client's own words. So I'm not providing a frame for them. We're using the frame that they create and that makes sense for them. So if I say, close your eyes, imagine the cleared space, start with a light in your heart, let it expand out and include your whole body, then let it expand out and include the whole space. Benevolent help is coming to help you. Who are they? Then they'll tell me who they are. Everybody has beings assigned to their case. I have found to a person, once we ask, unless they're just completely blocked and not willing to participate, then a certain being will appear, even if it's just a certain light or a certain form. Yeah, that are assigned to their case. And they literally see the space cleared of negativity, cleared of negative beings. And, you know, one pragmatic tool that is in the lineage, thousands of year old retreat tradition, is to literally create, it's called a SAM, T-S-A-M would be, you know, kind of the word SAM. It means boundary. You create a boundary around your space. It could just be your bed. It could be your whole house. It could be your land. But you literally visualize. And the effectiveness, according to the text, correlates to the power of your visualization, which is why kind of no getting around developing the power tool of meditative concentration. Through the power of your visualization and intention, you, you create safe space, literally, where nothing is allowed in that isn't going to be helpful. To, for you and the world, you know, for you in all form and all life. And you refresh this throughout the day. And I have found this, the most impactful stories of this are actually when I didn't do that once on retreat by myself and what happened then. I can tell you it works because of the things that didn't happen <laughs> in a way. I have to ask what happened when you failed to lay boundaries. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a story, but briefly, my second tantric retreat, my second Leirang, this getting fit retreat you do, five weeks, solitary again, all of the, you know, very hardcore, very hardcore type of practitioner and lineage. And I was doing uh, this retreat in this 100-year-old stone guardhouse that was by a spring in the Chiricahua Mountains in Arizona, um, in the deep mountain desert totally off-grid, of course, nobody around, very dirty. Um, one other person had done long retreat, had done a five-week retreat in there. Other, other than that, it, was, it hadn't been occupied for 100, you know, 100 years. Yeah, it's, it's near where Geronimo was finally captured. I went into my second tantric retreat, really, especially after seeing that red fireball on my first one and all the magical things that happened there. I really thought I was, you know, hot stuff at this point, very sophomoric approach. 
And I went into the second tantric retreat without doing the necessary preliminaries. I didn't set a good boundary. I didn't make these, there are these, these cakes you're supposed to make. It's a very, you know, traditional, you make them out of wheat and milk, all of these substances that are white. You might've seen them. They're like triangular shaped and often either red or blue. And they have like cut up processed cheese on them. You know, they're, they represent different mystical qualities. And you're supposed to make seven of these cakes that like take all day and oh, it's a pain. And I thought, I'm not going to do that because I have a sophomore, you know, because I know what I'm doing now. And I had such results. And oh, yeah, by the way, I'm in this state all the time now, right? And these cakes, by the way, these tormas, the whole purpose for each one of them is you offer them to different protection deities to protect your retreat. You offer them to Fajugini, you offer them to Yamantika, you know, this bullheaded protector deity. You offer them to your own lineage. You offer them to, to, the, to the place spirits, to the nature spirits who are like the fae. We would think of them as the fae who are on the land and and you offer them even to the demons that you're going to kick out of your retreat boundary. And you do all of this. Well, I didn't do it. And I go in and that night I go to sleep in this like haunted guardhouse practically. And I have this lucid dream that turns into a waking dream where I was in this beach house, this retreat beach house, and I left all the doors open. And because I left all the doors open in my dream, these like demons were getting into the house. In the dream, I woke myself up once I heard that. And literally, Stuart, there were two things that were going on. First of all, the papers on my um, my retreat, like I have a little meditation seat with the sadhana, your, your text, your liturgy, all these papers of your liturgy sort of piled up. The papers were flying all over the place. There was one window you know, in this little stone guardhouse on hinges that was blowing open and closed. And I could hear with my ears, and this was the middle of the night, like in the middle of nowhere, nobody's out there, nobody, you know, literally nobody's there. I could hear with my ears drumming and Native American singing, you know, what we would think of, you know, the, oh, you know, the, the drumming and the singing. I go outside, the wind is blowing. I hear the drumming. I hear the singing. I go back inside my huge bell jar of mustard seeds, which you use to purify a space, fell over, fell on the floor and shattered. Yeah, I, um, and, oh, and there was no wind. There was no wind outside when I stepped outside. So that's how I learned to do, you know, ritual. A lot of the tantric tools are just forcing us with our hands and our voice and our body to go through the motions of manifesting something different, like a boundary. Forces us to create in the moment those conditions. Yeah, that's the value of them. Great cautionary tale. Inspiration to follow through and be a good animist neighbor. What you touched on earlier regarding Bon as a precursor or foundation to Vajrayana reminds me to ask you about the way we have extricated, divested, and excised animism from so many of our traditions. For centuries, we've been bleaching our lineages, the lineages that know the cosmos is sentient, that personhood pervades all that manifests, that there are no objects without subjects. It's an odd human fetish the past few centuries to strip the interiority from our cosmos. What do you feel our prospects are toward reclaiming that big within? How concerned are you in this respect looking forward a few centuries? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm exceedingly optimistic. I think development is natural as long as we don't destroy ourselves. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a real physical toll in terms of survival for humanity right now. And I don't know if we as a species will make it in that sense, you know, without great death and destruction. But to me, as far as I, I can tell, and I've looked east, I've looked west, I've looked old, I've looked new. Evolution is natural. It, it, it does seem to, unless really put under negative, negative conditions, we tend to grow. And why we stop growing and why we keep growing are all questions we're still, we're still figuring out. But I sense this whole disclosure thing. Disclosure, in my sense, is, has already happened. It's been happening for a long time. You know, it happened in Tibet, and, in Tibet a long time ago and other places. It's, it's, it's something that's an ongoing process. But I, I believe it holds a unique opportunity to reclaim those aspects of what it is to be human. And in my world, I think this, the spiritual realm is a place where there are a lot of tools and we can find a lot of comfort in terms of making meaning of these experiences and of disclosure as more and more people begin to grapple with their own ontological shock. What do we as human beings tend to look towards? It's our connection with each other, sharing our stories and our history, as you said the history of what it is to be human on this earth. This has been going on a long time. So I think this subject holds that unique opportunity for a magical, not magical, but a, a very methodological, but instant sort of reboot. We're going to experience a big reboot of meaning making, at least in our culture. As you said, it's speeding up and that does seem to be happening. And I think our job is through things like this podcast and through the experiencer group, through the research that I'm doing is to provide a space for, for people to know that they're safe, that they're believed, and that they're not crazy. And in fact, if there was trauma, that there is a potential for transformation. And it's something we're going to do together. That's all we can do. Like, that's our action moving forward. What a great joy this has been. I'm so grateful and moved by you and your beingness in the world. And I feel so fortunate that you came on Aliens and Artists to share this wealth of experience and insight and wisdom. I just feel like we won the cosmic lottery. Thank you. Only I, yeah, I think you were the only one that could do it. And, I, and it's really important for me, as I mentioned karmically, to do this. Yeah, I, I think this is a watershed moment. And so super grateful for being a, a muse for me all these years and, and making it possible. This is the bomb. You know, this podcast is crazy. It is changing the world. You you are aware of this, right? Oh, thank you. It's the guests. I just feel blessed to be able to listen and converse with the beautiful souls who come on here and open up. There is a plate tectonic shift in the inner landscape. The depth and dimension that you bring to this meta enigma is just the medicine that we need. That's what I follow. That's the signal. So, Kimberly, thank you for humaning with us. You know, Stuart, the last time I was, one of the last times I was in a room with you, I was running away from you in a bar. <laughs> 
What? Why? What? <laughs> what was I doing that caused you to flee? Well, I was, it was probably, it was over a decade ago, perhaps 12 years ago or so, and I was with some mutual friends, and you walked in, and at the time, and someone said, oh, there's Stuart Davis, and at the time, it was a very serious time of my life, and at the time, there were like two people who could make me laugh out loud, and one of them is my husband, and the other one was you, and our relationship was just so perfect as it was. I had no desire to meet you at all. Like you were, you were my lifeline <laughs> to, to humor for a long time. So I want to thank you. So it was a comical escape to preserve the sanctity of an already complete, not yet relationship. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I ran out of that bar so fast. But, I, and I knew, I think I knew also that we would come together in the future when the time was right. So here it is. Yay! Here, <laughs> here it is. Yay! Yay! I won't run away from you in bars anymore, Stuart. To participate in Kimberly Lafferty's research on how we make meaning of experiences that don't make sense, go to confluenceexperience.com. Confluenceexperience.com or check the show notes. It's important work. I wager you've gleaned that by now. So if you're an experiencer, head to confluenceexperience.com. I know you think at this point I'm going to pitch you some clever ruse on why you should support the show by becoming a patron or a plus member. Wrong, wronger, wrongerist. I want you to make money. And it's so very, Yes. Okay, okay. You join, you make a payment, but then, guess what? I guarantee each new member gets a share of the money taken from every other additional each new member that you recruit. Patrons, for every plus member you recruit, you double your money. How? Because plus members, for every patron you recruit, you triple your money. And yes, each of you can be both, a patron and a plus member. So, like, you'll double and triple your revenue. And when those you recruit begin recruiting others, you'll make more money from them funneling money up to you. It's perfect. How does it work? Simple. Without creating any goods or services, your revenue streams come from recruiting more members, whose revenue streams come from recruiting other more new members. It's called exponential growth. Wow! Each level is much larger than the one before, and it's literally limitless, because Earth is infinite, and the people populating the planet with persons are inexhaustible, like the money, which we invented. It will never collapse, and don't worry, most people will be at the bottom of the pyramid just like in Egypt. You're not even selling anything, you're just selling. What will you do with all that disposable income? Get a lemur that shits in your gold toilet while you're baptized by your platinum bidet? That's vapid. I'm going to get ahead, a giant stone head of Easter Island. Specifically, I'm going to finish El Gigante. Um, it's only the largest stone moai ever incompleted on Easter Island. It's pretty cool. It's like 72 feet tall, weighs about 182 tons, give or take no fucks. For comparison, the previously biggest completed 
Stonehead was 10 meters high, which is nary a nut in El Gigante's stool. Please don't start in with the cultural appropriation, okay? This is cultural misappropriation. I'm gonna need a few hundred patrons and plus members on all fours to carve from tough El Gigante, polish him smooth by rubbing with pumice, throw down a few thousand wooden sledges, log rollers, and ropes. Now drag daddy's colossal cranial curiosity to the far side of the island so he can scratch his bare ass against its volcanic rock whilst frigate birds fire frigate turds or all the lazy lizards. Gertrude Abercrombie's Big Self Painter Gertrude Abercrombie once told Studs Terkel, quote, It is always myself that I paint. End quote. And what a self it was. Although she considered herself ugly, the mirrored visages depicting Abercrombie's self with a capital S testify to an immense beauty and a mesmerizing presence housed in her being. In the 1940s and 50s, her self-taught talent poured forth geyser-like, producing haunting, surrealist scapes at once captivating and unsettling. Any number of Abercrombie's works could serve as a scrying mirror for experiencers of anomalous phenomena. Her paintings pulse and gestate with animating oddity. But two in particular stand out as powerful and prescient in relation to aliens and artists. They are The Courtship from 1949 and Trapped from 1950. Both feature a woman in a pink dress in bizarre circumstances. Both have a pink cloud saucer-shaped UFO in the upper left of frame. Both include a dark, starless sky, and in each work, a conspicuously placed owl. In the courtship, the woman stands at water's edge, her hands raised. Opposite her, a man in black, blindfolded, his right arm raised, pointer finger extended, aimed at the woman like a gun. Above him, the pink UFO. Behind him, a solitary owl. To the rear of the woman, in the distance, a lighthouse. Near her feet, a pyramid-shaped conch shell, is my best guess, anyway. This, painted in 1949, the owl and the UFO, were not yet part of the anomalous vernacular. This was before Mike Cleland and the incalculable accounts from the 80s and 90s and on, in which owls came to take an essential, if inscrutable, role in UFOs, missing time screen memories and abduction. With the benefit of time, Abercrombie's composition feels flush with foreknowledge. And again in 1950, her painting Trapped shows ostensibly the same woman in a pink dress under a pink UFO, which she seems to be unaware of. The woman faces right frame, attempting to move, but her long dress is clutched in the beak of that same owl, now perched in a bare tree under the pink UFO. Abercrombie said of her own work, quote, I am not interested in complicated things, nor in the commonplace. I like, and I like to paint, simple things that are a little strange. My work comes directly from my inner consciousness, and it must come easily. It is a process of selection and reduction, end quote. Abercrombie passed away in 1977. Shout out to Susan Fenston for the heads up on Abercrombie's fascinating work, which we discovered thanks to Susan's tweet 
of the courtship. You can see some of Abercrombie's work in person in the new exhibit, Supernatural America, at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. For more on Abercrombie, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnosis, past life regression, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. To book a session, go to theliminalmuse.com or check the show notes. Also, The Experiencer Group, a membership site for experiencers of anomalous phenomena, including near-death, out-of-body, clairvoyance, precognition, lucid dreaming, non-human entities, UFOs, and more. No trolls, no stigma, just positive anomalous culture within the confines of a private haven. The Experiencer Group. Check the show notes to become a member. Modern man just loves to think and invent until his brain gets sore. Searching, learning, adding, so our existence keeps demanding more. With each advancement we adopt, progress well, it ought to be stopped. Long before they were building fires, we all survived on an uncooked meal. Nature gave us two.